0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1898, an army man checked into a hotel in New York. He was a rough rider, a group that had fought in the Spanish-American War under, most famously, future President Teddy Roosevelt. And this rough rider may have been tough, but he was also kind of spoiled. So much so that he couldn't be bothered to press an electric button
1: in his room. It really does reflect kind of this tension we have between buttons of wanting to make the world easy, wanting to make our technological experiences really effortless, but also that sometimes they don't even seem easy enough. Rachel Plotnick
0: is the author of Power Button, a history of pleasure, panic and the politics of pushing.
1: So that very funny idea of just shooting at the push button is sort of like, I don't even want to get myself up out of my seat. And people really worried that push buttons were going to make us lazy like this. That's
0: right. The Rough Rider, a man whose title was pretty much the embodiment of toughness, couldn't be troubled to get up and press the button in his room. So he got out his pistol and shot it. Buttons might be something that we rarely think about, but Plotnick argues that starting in the late 1800s, they changed everything. And they're still what gets us from one floor to another in a big building, or what gets us candy bars from vending machines, or what turns on the TV. So why did buttons flood into our lives? Well, a couple reasons. One is that a little over a century ago, as electricity spread out around the country, it, not unreasonably, kind of freaked people out.
1: And there was a big push, I think, by electricians to say, how can we make electricity less intimidating, less threatening to people who might want to use it? Because, of course, it was very scary, if you would imagine, an electrical world at this time period. So one of those answers, I think, is that there was a huge push from the electrical industry to say, let's use buttons as a way to sell electricity as a positive thing. And then I think the second answer to that question had to do a lot with consumerism and the boom of consumer culture at this time period, especially manufacturers like Kodak putting push buttons on cameras was really a way to signal to consumers, this is a new, easy, effortless uh, way of interacting with our technology that you don't need to understand what happens behind the button. Hey, anyone can push it. So in both of these ways, you see an effort to really work towards selling electricity and technologies to consumers. And I think that led to an explosion of button pushing. Plotnick is an
0: assistant professor in the media school at Indiana University Bloomington, And she says that the very reasons that buttons rose to prominence, fear of getting electrocuted or hurt by this new technology, and also the rise of consumerism, well, they had some unfortunate downsides. Like the fact that when we push buttons now, who the heck knows how the candy bar in the vending machine gets to us, or how we are whisked up to the 12th floor, or why the TV station changes.
1: You know, and I think that's both what makes buttons so seductive and so frustrating at the same time because, on the one hand, it does cover up all of that complexity. And it's not up to you to have to understand how that laptop works or how that vending machine works. And that's really appealing because we don't necessarily all need to be experts in those technologies. But on the other hand, that can be what causes a lot of frustration because people don't know how the thing works. And so, therefore, if you don't get an expected result or you get no result at all, you're kind of at an impasse. You can't really interact any further with the machine.
0: What Buttons have done is cover up the wires, the workings, and sometimes the people who make our lives run smoothly. That's as true in an airplane cockpit as it is when you use a touchscreen to order a burger at a fast food restaurant. And it was maybe even more true when Buttons became all the rage, which was right around 1900, at a time when mostly the rich could afford to electrify their houses. And what did they do with that electrification? Well, they pushed those inner workings as far out of sight as they could, meaning some of the first buttons were put in to
1: call servants. So you might find a button on the underside of a table or even a button embedded in the floor. And that was a very discreet way to facilitate calling the help uh, because people didn't want to make it obvious that you were doing that. You just wanted the servant to sort of magically appear at your beck and call. And so I think early on, buttons were very much associated with this kind of instant gratification and the servant is just sort of a magical genie that appears to do whatever you want them to do. So there was definitely that correlation between affluence and pushing buttons at that time period
0: did people worry that it turned that it turned servants i mean obviously servants were already servants so they were working for somebody and they were in you know um somebody's house and they were helping them with cooking or whatever but did they did people at all worry that this was even further distancing the person in charge from the person that they were employing because instead of even saying excuse me you know could you come and help me you're like p- pressing a button the
1: same way I do with a vending machine. That's exactly right. And I think that connects to the fact that at this historical moment, uh, servant quarters and where people would be working, employees were being increasingly separated architecturally from where these homeowners were as well. Uh, so this is where you began to have more servant quarters and separate spaces. It's where you have apartments that were very separate from other people's quarters. And I think one of the aims of the push button really was to say, hey, I don't even need to be physically in the same space as you, the help. Uh, And so that really was kind of a strategic technology of distance. I think one of the interesting stories in the book that I talk about is a housewife who says, oh, I can just press a button to discharge the cook and she can leave and go home. And I never even have to see her interact with her. So there was really this kind of problematic power dynamic, I think, about uh, strategically separating oneself from the help as well. It it seems like it
0: would it makes also a job of helping people an even more difficult job because you just don't get you're missing all that kind of human interaction that might make something a little bit more bearable or a sense that, like, the person thanks you at the end of the day. They don't even thank you. The button gets pressed and you're done.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why there was so much ire around what people called button pushers at this time period. You know, the same thing applied to push-button managers who were sitting behind their desk and pushing buttons to make their employees come at their beck and call. Everyone said that it seemed really inhumane, an inhumane form of communication, because it felt like just being treated like a servant or like a slave. People don't. want to be made to just appear and disappear at whim. It doesn't feel like a true interaction that's based between equals. So I think a lot of the discord that happened around push buttons was because of that very idea of separation.
0: And no, it's true. In w- when you say that, in some ways, things haven't changed that much. I mean, people with a push of a button order like on their phones, order pizza. And I mean, they a person will appear in some period of time with the pizza. So in some ways, You know, as much as we might want to think we've gotten really far from where we were 100 years ago, there's still a lot of that.
1: Absolutely. And I I think that gets to the interesting power dynamics behind buttons. You know, you mentioned, hey, it used to be only affluent people who got to push the buttons. But in some ways, I think we still have that kind of stratification where a person of privilege who can afford to order something or get something delivered to their house gets to push the button. And then we have all these manual laborers who are the people who have to do the delivering of that thing. So I think that stratification hasn't gone away. You know, this sort of class system of digital laborers, people who push the buttons and then those people who are pushed into action.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Rachel Plotnick. She's an assistant professor in the media school at Indiana University, Bloomington. And she's the author of Power Button, A History of Pleasure, Panic, and the Politics of Pushing. In the middle, you know, we talked about how – the wealthy had servants um, you know, in the late eighteen hundreds and the early nineteen hundreds and increasingly they they really communicated with those people via button. If you fast forward like fifty years to the nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties, there were a whole bunch of new servants in people's houses, especially that were used by women. But these were electronic servants. And they were kind of sold to women, dishwashers and microwaves and washing machines and blenders, like the idea that you could do things and you could get all the help that you needed. And and it would be so easy. It would be like, At the push of a button.
1: You can make your family's life
0: much brighter. You will find your work much lighter. It's as
1: easy as can be to live better electrically. How to do
0: it? You know, I wonder how much that changed women's lives and how much sort of buttons played into that notion that, like, you know, housework could be easier.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that many people talk about the 1950s and 60s as the real boom of push-button culture, just because you saw after World War II, people spreading out into the suburbs, getting all of these new household technologies in the middle class. And interesting scholars have done research on this, you know, like Ruth Schwartz Cowan, that have talked about this idea that there's actually more work for mother, or more work for women, even though you introduce these technologies, they don't actually take the work away. And then sometimes they actually make more work. And I think that my work fits in with that particular argument, which suggests that just because people got more buttons didn't necessarily make their lives easier. But I do think you're right that there's a tremendous shift in this kind of uh, human help, servant help. That we see disappearing around the mid 20th century. And instead, that human help gets replaced with push buttons. And that was a tremendous kind of shift to say, okay, now it's the buttons who are the servants. Now it's the buttons who are the slaves. Uh, And manufacturers really tried to sell and emphasize that as a benefit to consumers.
2: And
0: electricity. I mean, electricity, not people were going to that was what was going to do your work for you.
1: Exactly. And so I think there's an interesting dynamic that happens there. And I noticed a lot of advertisements, you know, as we move into the 20th century that would talk about your refrigerator is your slave. Electricity is your slave. You know, this is the magic genie that will bring you anything you want. So there's this idea that electricity is a more willing servant maybe than the human being who often wouldn't respond to the push of the button or wouldn't come when you called them. Now you have this constantly available, ready servant who's always willing and waiting to do whatever it is that you want. And the electricity industry, of course, really tries Tried to reinforce that metaphor.
0: Meanwhile, you've got uh, this other kind of empowerment through buttons uh, going on. President Grover Cleveland pushed the victory key to open up the 1893 World's Fair. And then I'm going to play you a little clip here. Um, this is from January 2018. President Trump sent out a tweet that caused a whole bunch of controversy, and this is a reporter from CNBC explaining that tweet.
1: Here's that tweet from the president that came late yesterday on North Korea, the president issuing this over Twitter, saying North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works.
0: Rachel Plotnick, um, author of Power Button, there's obviously something incredibly comical about that. But what does it like when you think about what you know about the history of buttons, how do you situate that that tweet?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when I first saw it appear on Twitter, I've kind of felt like, oh, my gosh, this was candy for my research, (laughs) Uh, because it, it was really just so telling, I think. And it repeats a trope that we've seen for more than 100 years. You know, people talking about how buttons will empower them not only to have control over a situation or a person, but to actually blow up a country or the world if they want to. And I saw people bragging about this back in the 19th century. You know, people worried about Thomas Edison being so powerful that. If he chose to, he could just push a button and choose any country of his choice and and blow up the world. And so I think buttons have always been very caught up in geopolitics. They're often a way to demonstrate one's country's strength or prowess over another country. And in the past, they often were also associated with male virility and strength and thinking about harnessing electricity to do whatever someone might want to do. And presidents have done this for a really long time. So I think his tweet actually fits into a much broader kind of historical narrative about men especially trying to use push buttons in a position of uh, political power. Um, We're now in this
0: era of I don't know whether you think of them as buttons but you know since since cell phones are so ubiquitous and people are indeed like pushing things on them they're flat and they don't stick up I guess are those buttons and what do you make of like what buttons have become?
1: Yeah, one of the things that first got me interested in the project was that I was seeing a lot of people talking about the, quote unquote, death of the button, and that we were moving into this kind of post-button society, which really interested me. And in some ways, maybe that has come to be a reality. Of course, now we see touchscreens being so ubiquitous, uh, and there are many other kind of voice-activated technologies like Siri or Alexa. But on the other hand, we're so used to buttons, and they're so entrenched in so many contexts. And even when you try to take buttons away from gamers on their controllers or any of these other technologies, you see that people still fundamentally want to push a button. And in many cases, that really is the most effective and usable way to carry out that action. Uh, If you think about driving and touchscreens in cars, that's a perfect example. You know, a touchscreen isn't always the best way to do something because when you're driving, you don't want to have to look at a screen. You want to just be able to feel around for the button. So it's important, I think, to think about usability and what kind of interface works best for the context rather than just saying, hey, let's throw out all the buttons or let's make everything voice activated.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, doing a, an event a few years ago where somebody who was blind was saying that, you know, years ago he had uh, bought a stove and it had essentially buttons or dials, different things on it that he could touch. And now the buttons have begun totally flat. For somebody who cannot see, they don't know what the temperature is. They cannot. They do not know where the buttons are. And, like, you realize the shape, the nature of a button changing It can change somebody's life. It can change all sorts
1: of things. That's absolutely right. You know, when we think about accessibility and how we design buttons to be the most usable to the most number of people, or we think about disability, which a lot of people have contacted me about and asked me about buttons and disability. You know, I think it's such an important question because even when it's just a button, that doesn't mean it's always going to be usable to people. But especially when you start thinking about touchscreens, that often can overlook a large percentage of the population that might not be able to interact with that technology in a usable way. So
0: from doing a whole book about buttons, which is pretty specific. And I don't know if you ever like before you started this project, I don't know if you saw that coming. Was there a story or two that just jumped out to you as the as the most interesting or funniest or just something that really surprised you about buttons?
1: Yeah, there were so many great little details that I came along, and people even still send me, you know, comics and memes and all kinds of great stories about buttons. So I think it really is just such a rich subject for inquiry. But one of the stories I think that stuck out to me the most was, which many people may know, is E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. Uh, And he talks about this dystopian universe where the main character is sitting in a room all by herself just pushing buttons all day, and she uses those buttons to communicate, to work, to play, to start her bath, to read books, everything she wants to do. And Forrester sort of imagined this as the worst possible outcome for society, right, that we would live in this dystopian world where you would be all by yourself, isolated, just pushing buttons all day. And that was just so striking for me to think about the fact that we really do live in a world today where most of our interactions happen by button. And many of the time, we're really not with other people when we do have those interactions. Um, I don't think we live in a dystopian world like he suggested. I think that may be too extreme. But it's fascinating just to kind of think about what he imagined back then and kind of the world that we're living in in this particular moment. RACHEL PLOTNICK
0: is the author of Power Button, a history of pleasure, panic, and the politics of pushing. She's an assistant professor in the media school at Indiana University Bloomington. Rachel, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And one more thing. If you've noticed that the latest iPhones don't even have a home button on them, we've got more about the decline of the push button on our website at innovationhub.org. Finally today, a note from a listener who caught our recent segment about how World War I created the modern American citizen.
2: I was uh, driving along and had on my local uh, public broadcasting channel, which is WYPR.
0: Kip Carl is a field engineer in the defense industry who lives in Baltimore. And as he heard stories of World War I, when the American state started to get bigger and more muscular, it evoked memories that, for many, have been forgotten.
2: So, my, my family is German American. On my father's side, uh, we emigrated in, my great grandfather emigrated in the late 1860s. And by the time of World War I, uh, my father, who was at that point, uh, you know, a third generation American, he was about five years old.
0: During World War One, German Americans were heavily discriminated against. Some were interned, ironically, inside Ellis Island. German
2: language classes were taken out of many schools. And uh, his grandfather, who was the one that had immigrated from Germany, used to pay him uh, a nickel to go down and stand in front of their house, and they lived in Detroit, and to stand there for several minutes and just to stand there and yell, to hell with the Kaiser, to hell with the Kaiser. And he would do this every so often because they wanted to make sure that, you know, with a last name like Carl and also... Obviously, my great-grandfather, having emigrated from Germany, would have spoken with a German accent that, you know, they were very clear to everybody in their neighborhood, you know, where they stood on the war.
0: German-Americans, like many immigrant groups before and after, tried to show their support for Uncle Sam, just at the moment when Uncle Sam was starting to loom larger and starting to shape Americans' views of themselves. If you want to reach out to us about anything you've heard here, email us innovation hub at wgbh.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Isil Kibbe, and engineers Doug Sugarts and Bill Piacciatelli. We also had production help from Hannah Jubilee and Nadia Lewis. From PRI and WGBH Radio. I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.